Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 28. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man with a plan, Mr. Chad Owen. Hello, Brooklyn. Good morning, Sydney. How are things down under this morning? The sun is shining and we can't get rid of the thing. It's just hot and sunny and we're in the fall. It's uh, it's full of energy. It's just a great way to wake up every morning. The only thing that makes it better, Chad, is doing a show with you. And holy smoke, are we going to do some future gazing today? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still riding the high of our uh, Bucharest Moonshots live <laughs> show. But uh, yeah, I'm real excited to dive into the co-founding team on today's show. Larry Page and Sergey Brun. Well, I should say Alphabet now, not just Google. I know. Do you think anyone is ever really going to adopt that in real life except like the Wall Street and the stock market? You just think of them as Google, don't you? Yeah. But I think it goes to show that Google isn't just Google.com. Yes. So much more than that. And I think that's why it's a smart move on their part. Whether it gets... Uh, into pop culture or not remains to be seen. Right. And can you, can you think of a duo, a founding duo in recent memory that have achieved the kind of success these guys have? I mean, does anyone come to your mind that rivals their success? Not for this long. No. no. Maybe. I mean, you know, the, the two Steves at Apple had a, mm-hmm. a nice long run. Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie Munster. Charlie Munger. Yeah. yeah. I think they're. They've definitely outlasted Larry and Sergey, but <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not in the tech world. They're in the much more conservative world of of investing, right? Um, but yeah, I think I think they're quite unique. Their, their success, their success, Chad. I mean, it's staggering. I mean, if you think Facebook, we talked about it on the Cheryl and Mark shows, just the extent to which Facebook has achieved huge scale and, and success. I think. Uh, Larry and Sergey have built a company that is off the chart successful. To think in the 15 years or so, they're at 70,000 employees, a market capitalization of $749 billion. And at, towards the end of last year, they had 80% plus share of all searches in the world. And they have got a lot of other things cooking in the Google X factory. Uh, I mean, it's it's quite remarkable to think that, you know, they have a small little uh, success with m- mobile phones, don't they, Chad? Yeah. I, doesn't Android have something crazy ridiculous, like 70% of mo- mobile market share oh, too? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, we all know about, obviously, the iPhone. But the truth behind the iPhone is it sells far less than, you know, Android phones, you know, largely Samsung phones, because, you know, iPhones are so expensive, the the mid and lower end is completely, completely dominated by Android. And it's a very fascinating comparison between an open system and a closed system. And I think Larry and Sergey, they're open by design. And if you compare them to Facebook, they're much more open. Compare them to Apple, they're way more open as a company, the way they collaborate. But I think that's kind of led to to a lot of their success. I mean, here is the stat. Android has 81.7% market share of mobile. Yeah, I, I, it. I thought I was highballing it. So, dude, that's that means their two products, i.e. search and mobile, are both 80% plus market share. This Considering these are technology playgrounds of the future, I mean, talk about a Ford looking like making a big bet uh, on the future, I mean, Google is it. Yeah, well, I think their dominance is precisely why they're pursuing so many futuristic things because their market share can only go down. And so they're they're getting out in front of all of the smaller companies looking to disrupt them and being like, nope, we're going to invent the technologies of the future. Uh, ourselves so that we won't be disrupted from the outside. That's so true. And and what is very exciting for our listeners today is that you're going to hear a lot about leadership, 
innovation, and you're going to actually hear some of the mission and vision that underlines the company that Larry and Sergey have built. And you're going to be able to learn how to move fast, how to think about the future. You're going to really discover some of the key things that they do to be successful. And if you're interested in the show notes and any links to some of the things we mentioned, please go to moonshots.io where you'll find everything uh, uh, that you could possibly need around Google for for show 28 of the Moonshots podcast. So, Chad, I, I feel like I just want to dive in. So where should we start? Yeah, so there's a really interesting clip from Barbara Walters who did a segment on Larry and Sergey. So I'll just uh, turn it over to Barbara as she introduces the two founders of Google. They met at Stanford and were immediately drawn to one another. We clicked in an interesting way at first. We found each other to be greatly uh, obnoxious. Both their fathers are college professors, but the Google guys don't credit their success to drive or brains. They say it was nursery school. We both went to Montessori school, and I think it was part of that training of not following rules and orders and being self-motivated, questioning what's going on in the world, doing things a little bit different. Mm. It's so interesting that the Montessori schooling that they both had seemed to have had such a huge effect on how they designed their company. They, they mention this a lot, don't they? Yeah. Shout out to uh, my sister, Anna Caroline, who's, who's getting an early childhood education and special education degree and going to be teaching Montessori. I was helping her tonight print out her uh, thesis. <laughs> For her, for her master's degree. But even, yeah, just learning from her and hearing from, from people like Larry and Sergey, it's an entirely different way of thinking of encouraging kids to learn. It's not teaching, really. Mm. It's really just encouraging different modes of activities and way for kids to experience yes. and, and learn from their surroundings. And of course, an upbringing like that wow. is going to create kinds of, of mental models and ways of thinking for you know, Larry and Sergey to come up with some of the ideas when they were first starting, you know, way back in in 1998. So I guess that makes this year the the 20th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. and it's I tell you what, learning is such an epic theme in the success of the entrepreneurs and the innovators that we've been examining and learning from, and. Larry and Sergey are none different. They are big on learning, not only on how they learned when they were young, but they have this uh, very strong view on how to create a learning company and the role of learning within the company. In Mm. fact, you know, it's really interesting. You know, Paige kind of establishes the idea that you need a learning company for engineers and this sort of sets you up to avoid the pitfalls of becoming large. And in fact, this next clip, Chad, this speaks straight to this. So so let's jump in and listen to, to Larry Page talking about creating a company for engineers, creating a place where you can learn. You know, I mentioned how I wanted to make company kind of for engineers, like thinking about it that way. Um, I think also as an entrepreneur who started Google, Trying to make a company for entrepreneurs also is something I think we're striving for. And, you know, I think in the same way, maybe when I was working for the consultant co- company in DC, it wasn't really my inner calling. You know, I think for most entrepreneurs, working for companies is also not so great. Why? Um, you know, I think it's a combination of companies generally trying to do the things they do well, plus the things that are adjacent. Um, and not thinking creatively about, you know, what they might have learned from doing one of the things they've already done, how so that might not, translate into a new business. They're not ambitious enough? Um, I mean, I think it's maybe not that as much as seeing learning from your business. I love that final idea, learning from your business. Hmm. Uh, taking taking all the experiments and iterations and what you're, you're testing as an early entrepreneur, which I, I'm sure they did, and instead of kind of pivoting wildly into the dark, actually taking a look back at what had worked and what hadn't worked in their business and really try and make that thing 
work. Yeah, and I would build on that too because what I was feeling when he was talking there is he he's like basically that you take your learnings and 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 the the art of transforming them into a new business is well if we did this in search at a meta level this is what we did this is how we approached it is there new possibilities of taking that kind of approach into new markets? In fact, he actually calls out companies for, for staying very close to their core business. So he talks about the adjacency, just going for the obvious next thing. You feel like with him, he's looking for something more spontaneous, more serendipitous, something that hey, it might not be that close, but you can use the learnings and, and, and think creatively in a new place. And that's why they've got their internet in balloons. They've, he's big on flying cars, Larry. I mean, they're doing so many different things and they'll take a shot at something like Google Glass and really give it a go. And you feel like this learning and discovery that they're doing is not something that is just a post-mortem after a project, but it almost is the fire starter to something new. I forget who has really championed this idea of the adjacent possible, but Larry is saying, like, don't just do the adjacent possible. It's like leap over the adjacent possible to to the next thing, Mm. you know, but don't leave the learnings from your previous company behind. So I'm sure that all of the learnings that Google has had, you know, from developing the Android platform is, you know, in the Chromebook, in Chrome OS, is in everything that they're doing going forward. Um, right, right. And it was Stuart, it was Stuart Kaufman uh, who, who developed this idea of the adjacent possible theory. So we'll have a note, uh, a link to that in, in the show notes because that looks really cool. Yeah, but kind, kind of building on kind of what you're saying, Mike, where it's more about creating the new and the mm-hmm. into the future while keep retaining your learnings. Here's just kind of a, a summary clip just talking about how Google's mission in a way is to revolutionize society. Mm. Larry Page may not fit the image of the typical swashbuckling CEO, but his image and his persona almost belies his ambition, which is incredibly outsized. He's, he's a classic Silicon Valley tech founder, right? He's impish, he's got a bit of a grin, he's a total introvert, and yet he runs a company of more than 50,000 people. He and Sergey Brin had co-founded the company as these kind of techies from Stanford. He was in many ways the first kind of uh, geek to make the corner office. He's obviously um, you know, had the time to develop himself as a CEO, and if you look at the projects that Google and Google X has undertaken under his watch, it is incredibly ambitious, incredibly daring. Google practically does everything except search at this point, I mean, to be fair. They make most of their money there, but they do self-driving cars. They have a massive ads business that's all over the place. We have Project Moon, which is a sort of space balloon that delivers internet. We have Google Glass, there's robots, there's drones, nanoparticle research, hovercrafts, or teleportation, uh, space elevators, all these things that have a really good chance of failing because they're so ambitious. That's the whole point. If they succeed, they stand a chance at revolutionizing society. It's so true when you think about the, the the breadth of what they do in revolutionizing society. But what I love about this guy, with Larry Page especially, is the way he challenges our assumption on what a CEO should be. Not only is he super thoughtful, come on, let's say it, he's kind of geeky, but he's very softly spoken and reflective. But what underlies that is this enormous ambition. And I love this style. I mean, it's it's a content-heavy approach. It's less bombastic compared to the a lot of the CEOs of the 80s and 90s. And this is this is somebody who's full of substance. Yeah, I love the imagery of the geek that got the corner office. Yeah. Um, you know, it it is kind of at this point a caricature, but I think. Larry and Sergey, you know, they were the beginning uh, seed of mm. that of that caricature. You know, I'm I'm sure people like uh, Jeff Bezos, at least in in the late '90s, also occupied that. Although, Mike, you 
keep sharing this funny visual meme of uh, Bezos in the 90s versus Bezos today. And it's like, <laughs> badass. The geek in, it's like the geek in front of his little office and then the and then the badass in sunglasses and a vest with like his biceps. You yeah, know? I know, so I know. Kind of, he's kind of busted that, that stereotype. But even just comparing Larry to, to Bezos, you know, Larry is even more in the techie, geeky side of things, yet his ambition is just as or bigger, you know, than than Bezos's, even if it doesn't sound like it. Mm. The the um the nice the nice thing that we have to learn from here, and I think what's so important for our listeners is that you don't have to be the bombastic know-it-all. You can be the thoughtful leader, the reflective leader. And in fact, we've got a great uh, clip here where Eric Schmidt, who had tenure uh, actually as CEO uh, at Google uh, for many years. So, so Larry and Sergey thought, oh, they called it bringing in a grown-up. And he came along for, for several years and was the CEO and he's then went on to be the chairman for, for almost another decade. Now, what's interesting then, so uh, Eric Schmidt has this incredible insight into how Larry leads. And this is a massive opportunity for us to understand how we can be leaders too. And at the heart of how Larry leads is agitating in a positive way. Uh, and what we're going to hear now is how he does things that push everybody to the future to move fast and to do the right thing. So let's have a listen to Eric Schmidt on how Larry leads Google. But, but one of the things that he did after he became CEO in correcting all the messes that I handed to him oh, uh, oh. were to, were, he wrote a very, very defined memo about innovation, how decisions are made, and so forth. And it's, it's, a, it's large companies are their own worst enemy because internally they know what they should do, but they don't do it. And if I may say, my, my business partner and close friend Larry, what does he do all day? He's doing that. He's in there forcing the discussion, forcing the choice, and forcing the resolution. I don't know how he does that in a company of 70, you know, 50,000, 70,000 plus people. But I have seen this in the work that I'm doing. You know, I work with a lot of large companies and what they don't realize is they have the answers. They're just not acting on them. Mm. And so it's fascinating for me to hear from, from Eric how Larry is able to continue to move people t towards that action. Yeah, and, and this, this can you imagine how important that is when you have 70,000 uh, employees and, you know, you have to come with such a sense of clarity and purpose because there are so many things to distract you. Can you imagine the emails <laughs> that guys like Larry and Sergey get in every day? And, like, you've just got to, like, have clarity about purpose and mission and drive things forward because there's a million things to, you know, in you know, brackets, keep you busy. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing at the heart of how they um, look to the future is it really seems to me like they're creating this very active, fluid uh, culture and environment for people not only to think about the future but to think creatively and to, and to think differently. And um, what's really interesting, we've got one of our show favorites, uh, Chris Sucker, great investor. Before you go, before you go too far, Mike, though, I, I, I don't want to gloss over this, this point of, of Google, of Larry forcing Google to have a bias towards action. Mm, that's true. That's, that's, ve that's very true. And we've got actually some clips coming up where actually Sergey speaks specifically to that. But why, tell me, Chad, why do you think this uh, bias towards action matters so much. Think about all the projects we've worked on together. Well, because no one else is doing it. it it's it, it's fascinating to me to see a company like Google that is that still has this bias towards action. Because Eric is right. You know, uh, uh, the corporate default is inertia. Yeah. And if you can keep your company moving quickly with a bias towards action, that's when all of the crazy innovations are going to happen. And yes, there will be failures, but as as the point was made, like failing is the point. Mm. 
And so it's really, it's really cool for me to see a company like Google where like someone in, in Google X, their kind of sole, the sole purpose of that business unit is just crazy 10x moonshot ideas. Someone just thinks of something crazy and outlandish and they test it. They don't like sit and talk about it for six months and figure out how to bring it to market. They're just like, hey, can we put a Wi-Fi router on a balloon and just send it up over Mountain View and get Wi-Fi from it? And they did that and found out, well, yeah, that works. So how can we do that, you know, for remote villages um, or, you know, disaster areas and, and, and those sorts of things? And that's how, you know, Project Loom was built. They just go and do it. And Yes, having the money and resources and, and, and people they do makes that easier, but it would be very easy for, for Google to sit and rest on their laurels. And it's encouraging to me to see that that's not the case. That's not what's happening. Yeah. And, and, and this, this is not to be underestimated as a challenge within any organization. In fact, uh, another one of our show favorites, uh, Jeff Bezos talks about the two pizza strategy. If you want to move fast, you have to have a team that can be fed by two pizzas because if you need more than two pizzas, it's too big. So it really mm-hmm. does seem that, that there's this pattern amongst all these great entrepreneurs. They've identified that size kills. Right, because it creates this bureaucracy, and and as a business gets big, one of the key things that I see is that the Im- uh, you know when you make a decision in a large company, the implications are huge, and nobody wants to make a million dollar mistake. So what happens is mm. everyone reverts to an aversion of of risk, and if you create that environment, you have zero innovation. You will not grow healthily for decades if you don't take risks. And we keep seeing this. We even see now the likes of Facebook face challenges from unseen areas such as regulation. We see Snap. They did some cool things, but their stock price, hmm, are they really, uh, you know, a glasses company? There's a lot of challenges and headwinds out there that the only recipe you can have to, to fight against that and to succeed in that context is to be moving fast and thinking differently. And that's everything that they seem to do. And I wanted to, 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 to bring that clip in that, that we mentioned earlier. Let's have a listen to Chris Sucker because he's another show favorite. And he's talking uh, in this clip about, you know, what did they do at Google to create an environment where people have the freedom to think differently. So let's have a listen to Chris Sucker talking about the founders and the CEO of Google. What do you think about where Google is today? And what do you think about, you know, the, the company under Larry Page versus the company under Eric Schmidt and the triumvirate? Larry's one of the smartest people ever, not just like alive, but ever. And I think he's been sent to us from the future. Like, <laughs> maybe he won a batter, you know, used that, um, some weird fortune telling machine and got teleported or something like that. But he knows what's going to happen ahead. Um, uh-huh. And he was always the guy who was willing to take unreasonably large bets. Like, just, just crazy shit. And, and it was funny, like, I always, I think the beautiful thing about Eric Schmidt at that company was that. It wasn't that he was the adult supervision. I think that underestimates both him and uh, Larry and Sergey. What he was was he, he was the voice of reason that allowed Larry and Sergey to just go off the fucking deep end with their ideas sometimes mm-hmm. and just think about the things that would otherwise be unthinkable. Like, you know, we'd be talking about net neutrality and Larry and Sergey, for the academic exercise of it, could actually be like, well, you know what? What if we just said fuck net neutrality and we just ran fiber to everybody's home and that was it, you know? And now, like, and it wasn't neutral. And you're like, uh, 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 because you've just spent the whole last year of your life, like, building arguments for why net neutrality makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing a CEO of a company could never actually say in a brainstorm like that. Right. But because Larry and Sergey, weren't ultimately responsible for the crazy shit they said in those meetings because Eric was always going to bring us back to some rational point. They were free to think of the shit that was just so off the charts, you know, and so they would just say like, well, fuck it, let's just, like, how much would it actually cost to ship one of these devices to every American, Mm -hmm. you know? And he'd be like, well, $3 billion. Like, well, we have a lot more than $3 billion, so let's Mm -hmm. just do it. Instead of like... (laughs) 
instead of like advertising and trying to convince people to do it, let's just put one in the mail to everybody, you know? And they're just like, my God, like just regular humans don't think like that. <laughs> regular humans don't think like that. It's so true, isn't it, Chad? Yeah, I think this, he mentioned the triumvirate. And I think without a doubt, this is part of why Google achieved the scale that it did was because someone like Eric came in, not not as the adult, but that third voice of reason to hear their crazy ideas and operationalize it and figure out, you know, it, at that point, Eric kind of stepped in as the entrepreneur for the two of them and was like, okay, how can I mitigate this risk here and yet still try it. Yeah. And it really speaks to something that I think is an essential tool for any innovator, which is this formula for creating breakthrough products and services, which is, you know, called the 10X formula. And basically the the idea that we're hearing about from Google is that they tackle big problems, not small, not medium, really massive problems. And then what they do, and this is what their culture opens up, is the possibility to take radical approaches, creative approaches, what they call thinking differently about the problem. And when you tackle a huge problem and you use a radical approach that is underlied by emerging technologies, this is when you get 10x, this is when you get scale, this is when you get two products that just to remind you guys, 80% of the search market, Google. 80% of the smartphone market, Google. Billions and billions of dollars of, of value has been created. They have captured 750 plus billions of dollars in value in 20 years by thinking differently, by having these radically different approaches. Mm. And again, I think w- what I have learned in, you know, reading books and excerpts like, you know, how Google works, works, et cetera, is how important it is in this founding team, in the leadership team to be configured in such a way where everyone is working and doubling down on their strengths. And mm-hmm. it's it's not quite so much about kind of mitigating weakness as much as it is really leaning into your strengths. One, one thing that comes to my mind as you say that is how well they've done that, how well they incorporated Eric Schmidt. And if you think about it, Microsoft didn't do this new, nearly as well when Gates brought in Bulma. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bulma at the end, I mean, if you look at the differences Satya Nadella has made at Microsoft, then, you know, you can see how well Larry and Sergey created this culture, not only to think different, but to share each other's strengths and to allow a third person into the co-founding team. I mean, that is rare, don't you think? I mean, can you think of anyone else that's that's done something like that with such success? Because Microsoft certainly didn't do it. No, n- not at the stage that Google no. was at when Eric came on and the success they've had since. I, I can't think of any. No, no. Wonderful. I mean, it's just so much to learn from. They're all about learning from the past so that they can think differently in different categories. I mean, they're revolutionizing everything. And Larry is holding them accountable. He's the agitator, the soft-spoken agitator. And there's this underlying freedom to think different. I mean, well, I mean, we got a show right there, Chad. I mean, that is a ton of stuff. But we, wait, 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 wait. But we have like seven or eight more I know, clips. I know. That's my whole point. Like, can you believe it? So coming up, we've got how they get into the secret source of actually innovating. So a real deep dive into product design, product creation. And the other cool thing is we've got some great thoughts on how they think about uh, the the future. But, you know, Sergey is not to be underestimated in this picture, Chad. He's also got some wisdom for us as well, doesn't he? Yeah. So strangely enough, it was harder to find clips with him versus Larry. But I had uncovered some really interesting talks he had given at X, uh, you know, the kind of in the innovation within the innovation inside of Google. And he has this really just great mantra about moving fast that I will just let him say, and then we can talk about afterwards. 
you know, uh, engineers don't have enough time to do a proper design. You know, this gets shortchanged, that gets shortchanged. I mean, there there are a hundred reasons not to go fast. Uh, but in the end, I'm really glad that we did, and and I think I've seen that across a range of products, and ultimately forces you to make real trade-offs about what actually is really important, uh, you know, and things that you might have held very dear. Say, well, maybe that's not really the key thing, uh, and maybe what we can get in this next month is the really important essence of this thing we're trying to create. Hmm, moving fast, Chad. How many times do we see this secret sauce, almost this constraint of pushing and, and, and things forward, like sprinting forth, whilst so uh, simple as a, as a force, seems to unlock so much innovation? I mean, we see it time and time again when we're, when we're rapid prototyping, don't we? Yeah, I, I think if I had to give you know, a single piece of advice, it would be it would be to have that constraint of of really short cycles where you're testing learning and and iterating mm. and and it's this ability to move to to close the gap between when you test and learn like if you can keep the the sprints really quick and the gaps between the sprints even shorter so that the learnings are still ripe and then you can move quickly into the next iteration and iteration after that. This has to be for anyone who's out there thinking, um, I want to do something very innovative. The how you do it is fast, moving fast, learning fast and making sure that you have that that level of learning. But what Sergey gave to us then is that because you don't have enough time, that constraint forces you to make priorities because you can't do it all. Mm-hmm. And it's so mm-hmm. simple, but it's so powerful. And I'll tell you one thing, Larry Page knows for sure that big companies forget how to do this. Uh, the bureaucracy takes over, the risk avoidance takes over. And I think that it's really, really, I mean, if there's one thing that they've kept going from small to big is moving fast, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in the same way that one of the biggest things large corporations have to overcome is inertia, mm. I think the other is having 15 priorities. Right. And <laughs> we all know that if you have 15 priorities, it's the same as having none. Yes, it is. And I, I love how Sergey just lays it out in that you don't have time to have more than one priority when you're moving fast. Mm-hmm. So the priority remains the priority and what you're working on is the most important thing to work on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love how the speed forces the prior, prioritization. It's not like, oh, we're going to get our priority straight. It's like, no, let's move fast and that will force the priority. Exactly. Now, one of the great things that uh, Larry Page did is he took time to understand, you know, why do these big companies fail? And why aren't they innovating? And he actually baked that into Google. So he's going to make sure they don't do what most companies do. And this is why they are so contrarian, why they're so successful. So let's listen now to Larry Page and how he discovered the thing that kills a lot of companies. Um, Also, companies generally don't innovate that much. And I guess as Google's gotten bigger, we're almost 400 people now. It's, you sort of notice this, as you get more and more people working on one thing, it's harder and harder for them to be innovative, just because the communications cost and the inertia and all those kinds of things. And most companies end up being marketing or sales driven and not engineering driven. So let me just give another example quickly. There's a thing I call the technology trend bandwagon. And technology companies specifically get all really excited about various standards like you know, XML or .NET or Corba or you know, any of the things I have listed here. And in fact, they're kind of like plumbing. Uh, If you had, for example, do you really care if you have copper plumbing in your house or plastic plumbing? Well, maybe one's a little bit quieter, a little bit cheaper, or so on. Maybe the water tastes better with copper. Uh, But there's pretty minor differences. And much of the things that the technology industry really gets excited about don't actually affect users very much. And in fact, um, you can ask, does does this really affect programmers very much? Um, Does anyone really care? People generally get excited about things that don't matter. I'll, I'll give you one other quick quick example. Uh, if you go to Fry's and you buy a flatbed scanner, you know every month you go to Fry's, uh, it'll have like twice the resolution, and they're up to about 2,400 dots per inch. 
and um, if you've never played with one of these, it can actually image every dot of ink on your paper, you know, and you can see that the dots of ink are round and things like that, and you can see every grain of, you know, grain of fiber in the paper. And that's not tremendously useful. Um, and it turns out, as a result, the scanners are really, really slow. And in fact, if you uh, challenge you to go to Fry's and find any scanner that says how long it takes to scan something. And the reason is, if, you, if it's set on the box, less people would buy it, right? Because it'll say, like, three minutes to scan a page. And in fact, what people probably care about is to scan, you know, with reasonable quality quickly. And actually, no one's built a product like that. There's probably, you know, a good market for a product like that marketed correctly. So I think a lot of things end up being, you know, you end up focused on one very specific thing and not looking at what users want. Hmm. I was, I was laughing there at the beginning of the clip because I'm not sure if you misspoke or not, but he said, as we grow to 400 people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, so that, that gives you kind of the, the time frame of where this came from, but I don't think I can say it better than him as to what the opposite of innovation is. The, the opposite of innovation is working on something that people don't care about. And that's kind of the disease that he's talking about. Yeah, and he uh, what what I what I really love about it is he's so clear in causation. Big companies do this, so therefore that. So we will do like, and it's the same as when you listen to Elon, and they make it they're so insightful that almost the outcome and the 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 the, the deduction is so self evident, but it's actually having the ability to see through the fog, to see through the grain, to see it more black and white. And I, I find that if one of their practices that is so powerful in unlocking value and, and you can really feel that at the heart of why they've been so successful is to truly embrace the forces that make big companies unsuccessful and to think differently uh, to problems. And that's, that's why they have... Two massive home runs in 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 both mobile and search, don't they? Yeah, and an interesting thing that I'm taking away from this clip too is Larry's walking into the neighborhood electronics store, and he he's he sees an innovation problem. So he's seeing and he's looking for and seeing these things everywhere. So it just goes to show us the importance of you know keeping your eyes open and looking and watching for these kinds of things and what are the lessons that that we can learn mm. you know th this theme mm. of lifelong learning i mean i i just thought it was fascinating he like he walks into electronic store and he sees the scanner with double the amount of scanning he's like they're moving in the opposite direction of where they need to go that's not what the consumers yes. want and and those use cases that elon has so so clearly larry does too because he's like mm -hmm. you want to print it that prints fast and scans fast. You don't want. You don't need a gazillion different, a gazillion, a bazillion DPI. You just need the thing fast. And I'd be buying a printer like he described because he's absolutely spot on on the on the use case here. And and again, you know, the use cases, thinking differently, moving fast, learning a lot. This is just the start of what they do well and what they share with the likes of, of both Amazon and Tesla. But I think one of the more unique characteristics that they have is how open they are, particularly in comparison to, to the likes of Apple and even Facebook. And this next clip, we've got the, the opportunity to listen to, to, to Larry speaking specifically on how they're different to Facebook. And we've got a lot to learn here because these are two different models, the open and the closed model, or some, you know, similar to that of the bundled and the unbundled. This is really powerful thinking. So let's have a listen now to Larry Page talking about open versus closed data. I think that it's uh, it's something we take seriously, like people's social media. I think it's been unfortunate that Facebook has been pretty closed with yes. their data, uh, you know. And I think we would certainly, you know, we're in the business of searching data. We don't generally turn it down yes. uh, when it's offered to us. So, I think you know, in general, I think we'd like to see content on the internet being made more open and so on. You know, we had a we had an issue with them over contacts, right. uh, where they, you know, from a user's perspective, you say, "Oh, it's great! I'm you know, I'm joining Facebook. I want my contacts." And Google, we said, "Fine, you know, you can get them from Google." 
And uh, the, the issue we had is that then Facebook said, no, Google, you can't do the reverse. And so we just said, well, users don't understand what they're doing. They're putting data in, and they don't understand they can't take it out. And so we're, we said, well, we'll only participate with people who have reciprocity. And we're still waiting. <laughs> For them to, to offer reciprocity. Yes. Yeah. And do you think they might in the future? I mean, I hope so. I imagine they'll be forced to eventually uh, yeah. if, if, uh, you know, if, uh, if they don't choose to. But I think, it's, I think the idea that you know, you'd hold your users hostage kind of, and they have some reasons for it that don't make sense, but, yeah. you know, they'd hold your users. What are their they, reasons? They claim it's a privacy issue, but it's not really, because they, they do it with Yahoo. They yeah. just don't do it with us. But I think that, uh, you know, you don't want to be holding your users hostage. Hmm. Almost a foretelling. So press oh, foretelling of yes, it's just so pressing. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so and this was this was a number of years ago yeah, yeah. when he was talking. So, to, so let's set to Charlie let's Rose. set the context here for our listeners. We pulled a clip from a couple of years ago, and right now Facebook is being grilled on regulation, and we know regulation is coming. We know they didn't take care of data and privacy. Uh, you know, Marks and and Cheryl are on their apology to it. But here's the thing: he's saying. Essentially, Facebook is a walled garden. It's closed off. So they would not do reciprocity with Google to exchange data. So they'll say, oh, Google, you can give us profile and contact information, but we won't give you the same back. And he was saying that's not good for users. And what he went on to discuss with Charlie Rosen is he's like, well, look, we're not going to play ball with them if they're not going to uh, do tit for tat. And you know what? In the end, they probably won't have a choice. They're going to be forced to. So he was alluding to the fact of regulation is coming for them because they don't play fair. And I mean, as you said, prescient. I mean, he saw the future before it happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was in he was in the data game at least six years before Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and he saw Microsoft. And so, yeah, I think he just yeah, saw it. He, 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 you know, writings on the wall. And, and Google has already had some regulation in, in Europe, and we have the, the GDAP uh, regulation coming in, the privacy data uh, laws in Europe, which is big. So there's a lot of uh, response now from regulators in Europe, and, and the US will, will no doubt follow. But it is... It's not to say that, that Google's immune to this. You know, I think certainly the attention that's being put onto Facebook now is going to cause everyone to take a look at all of the the tech and, and yeah. data behemoths, but I think certainly everyone else will be prepared, or I hope they are. There's no reason they shouldn't be now. If if they aren't, shame on them. But mm. yeah, it was fascinating for me to hear Larry so presciently call this yeah. <laughs> in a way <laughs> that if we don't move to more open data systems, that people are going to become suspicious and accusatory and, and, and force companies like Facebook to open their walled gardens. Mm. And you see the same difference in between Android and, and Apple, uh, closed and open. I think the one really interesting twist on this, Chad, is that Apple, despite being very closed, has no economic model, no business model in selling our data. Now, Facebook has it by far that they live and breathe on selling our personal information. Google, to a much lesser extent, because they're, they're selling our intent. They don't have a social network. They're selling our intent through search. But it's fascinating to see the scale and implication of these different models and that one of the key ideas that underlines it all is open versus closed. And our personal information and profiles as the product mm. versus something that we're outright purchasing. Again, kind of the extreme of Facebook versus Apple. You know, Apple, I'm going and buying an iPhone 10, but Facebook, I'm, there's, I, and from my point of view, there's no transaction when there's millions of advertisers mm. buying my iPhone. It's almost like where you get to with search is the happy medium. I've said, hey, you know, iPhone 10. And I've typed it in or I've typed black minimal T-shirt into Google, bang. I've already raised my hand and said, I'm trying to find this. So Google's like, well, if we can help you either through organic or paid search, we're good. And that seems like a much fairer trade-off that, that users understand. I think what's been so apparent is the 
consumer and customer implication of open versus closed is that and the ignorance of yeah it that's too, where i was up going. to now yeah yeah people just had no idea that facebook's model was built on exploiting this personal information whereas if if the world announced that google was sharing your search queries you'd be like well yeah of course because how else would i see the ad like you that that would have be of no surprise so it's almost like facebook got caught out not sharing the whole truth, right? Not, you know, in that sense. And whereas Google is so open about it and it's, it's so explicit that you don't run into those, those sorts of challenges. So it, it really is for everyone listening, open versus closed as a concept with technology is critical as a concept to understand. And um, when you understand some of these operating models, it's very similar to some of the stuff that Elon talks about where he's got his mental models um, that he talks about and the way he sees the world, obviously open versus closed. Uh, and particularly making things open seems to be at the heart of how Google innovates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, aside from just, again, a, a defaulting to more openness, they just leapfrog over everyone else mm. and build, just build things that don't exist. And I love this next quote from Larry where he talks about how that idea is so core to what they're doing at Google. I think we're all here because we share a deep sense of optimism for about the potential of technology to improve people's lives and, and the world as part of that. And I'm amazed Every day I come to work, the list of things that needs to be done is longer than the day before. And the opportunity of those things is bigger than it was before. And because of that, I think we, as Google, and as an industry, all of you, we're really only at 1% of what's possible. And probably even less than that. And despite the faster change we have in the industry, we're still moving slow relative to the opportunities that we have. And some of that, I think, is due to the negativity. You know, every story I read about Google is kind of us versus some other company or some stupid thing. And I just don't find that very interesting. Uh, we should be building great things that don't exist. Right? Yeah. Great things that don't exist. Like, let's build some of those. Such a powerful, simple thought. And you can see how dismissive he is of this V that and this. He's like, so he's on such a big mission. I feel he's somewhat Zuckerberg like here on a really big mission. As with Musk and Bezos, they all share like these enormous dreams of the future, don't they? Yeah. I, I'm still skeptical of of some of them. Uh, I think there there's some health to that skepticism, but um, I think Larry and Sergey and Elon have lived into that more than maybe someone like Mark Zuckerberg right. at Facebook. You know, I think I think most of us have a long ways to go uh, to be building those things that that don't exist. But I love his idea of, hey, let's all just come together. In the end, we're all working towards the same thing, building things that don't exist. And we're getting in our own way. I think that's what's nice and uplifting about this message is, yes, there is healthy competition, but you know, he sees it from a world of abundance instead of a world of scarcity. Mm, he does. And, you know, what's so powerful right now, so I'm thinking about this is absolute clear. They move fast. They, they move small. They build things that are open and they try and create things that don't exist. That's clearly the formula of innovation that they employ. And as far as leadership, it's all coming back down to learning and agitating, giving creative freedom to think different. So what two massive building blocks um, and what's really cool is the last few clips we have of the show, we've got some real fuel for this innovation and leadership. We've got some really big ideas on how they dream, what their vision is for the world and how they make, how they feed that innovation and leadership. They've got so much inspiration to give us. So we've got both Larry and, and, and Sergey coming up 
I don't know. Where do we want to start this, Chad? We got we got some really killer ones to close out on. I'm yeah. I'm just gonna jump right into this one uh, from Larry talking, building on this last quote about building things that don't exist. You know, if we don't if we don't do that, we'll miss out. So here's Larry talking about you know us not missing out on the future. What quality of mind, as I leave this audience, has enabled you to think about the future and at the same time? change the present you know i think the most important thing you know i looked at lots of companies and why i thought they don't succeed over time and we've had a more rapid turnover of companies and i said what did they fundamentally do wrong like why do those companies all do wrong and they usually it's just they miss the future and so i think for me i just try to focus on that and say what is that future really going to be and how do we create it and how do we cause you know our organization our organization to really focus on that and drive that at a really high rate and so that's been curiosity has been looking at things people might not think about working on things that no one else is working on because that's where the additionality really is and be willing to do that to take that risk you look at android i felt guilty about working on android when it was starting, it was a little startup we bought. It wasn't really what we were really working on. I felt guilty about spending time on that. That was stupid. Yeah. That was the future, right? That was a good thing yeah. to be working on. It's so funny that he, he, I love the candor that he admits that he kind of felt guilty about working on Android, you know, the world's biggest operating system for mobile phones. I mean, can, can you believe that? Yeah, but it was necessary. You know, that was how he didn't miss miss mm. the future. That was, you know, one of those one of those bets where they bought that company thinking that, well, maybe one day we can turn this into the future operating system that runs eighty one percent of the world's mm. phones. Um and it paid off. But the survivorship bias is not telling us the story of all of the failures that Google has bought and put mm. on the shelf, um, in, you know, in terms of companies or things that they've mm. tried and had to put back on the shelf. Um, but yeah, I think any leader of a company that doesn't have this attitude is going to lose in the long run. You know, if they don't, if they don't understand that there are things and people that are happening around and underneath and beside Mm -hmm. them that will eventually overtake them. Yeah. They're, they're going to get got. Yeah, that feels like one of the big meta themes as we've moved from an industrial era to an era of technology, of data, of software. It feels like the rapid speed of change is something that you know big companies are having enormous challenges with. Um, you know, and what they might call digitization is really just a, a first step in a whole series of changes going right up to cultural redefinition of these companies. But what's What's mm-hmm. particularly powerful about founders is that they often, you know, have like these visions of, you know, shooting for the future, but they have these aha moments when the problem crystallizes, when, when Branson was standing there and there were no flights is a classic one. Uh, when Elon as a kid would draw and read about spaceships and rockets you know all of the the things that you see they they have the clarity of these moments to grab the idea and this next clip that we've got is actually larry talking about the essence of where google came from its origin story and uh let's have a listen to him let's have a listen to larry page talking about the dream of google i want to talk about dreams for a second And in my case, literally a dream. When I was in college, I was sure that I'd been admitted by a clerical error, probably a computer error. And because of that, I had an irrational fear I'd be sent home on the bus. And Sergei's fear knows this is true. But it turns out, because of that anxiety, I woke up literally with a dream. And it was kind of a strange dream. It went like, I think I could download the entire web onto some old computers that were lying around. And that would probably seem pretty crazy to most people, but I stayed up a couple hours in the middle of the night doing some math, and it seemed actually pretty plausible. Well, assuming you actually didn't keep any of the web pages, you only kept the links. 
And then sort of figured out, given all that data, I thought it would take a couple of weeks. And I told my advisor that. And he just sort of laughed at me. And of course, it took him a year or two. But at the end of that, we had a way to rank web pages. And no thoughts to search at all. And eventually, search entered the picture. And you know the rest. And that became Google. So I'd like to encourage everyone to follow their dreams. I don't want the end of that and the applause to get lost. Is The message he leaves us with is to encourage us to follow our yeah. dreams. And, you know, that was a radical, audacious idea that is at the heart of their, you know, strategic success, that they had this big, big dream. Let's just download the whole web and organize all the information on the planet. Let's just do that, which sounds so <laughs> ridiculous. But then actually they go about doing it and we see it time again. You know, Elon wants to colonize uh, Mars. You know, Bezos wants to create the most customer-centric company in the planet now and in history. Like these dreams, which do sound audacious, end up leading to so much opportunity, so much potential. And I really believe that in this idea, Chad, that if you dream big, if you go for, for something really massive, it doesn't really matter exactly on the course, but it's the fact that you had such big ambition, such a dream to solve a big problem, that things will always work out. There's always little pivots you can do, serendipitous opportunities. And if the problem is big enough, there will be enough people that care about getting that problem solved that they'll either want to join your company, invest in your company, or be customers of your company. But when you solve little things, People don't have enough time or attention to really care. And I think this is a great lesson in building companies around big ideas, not small ones. Yeah, my favorite contrast to this, I, I, as you're speaking, I, this came to mind. There's this great show on HBO. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Silicon Valley. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It makes fun of all of the people and archetypes uh, of leaders that we've been talking about on the podcast. But in the most recent season, the main characters, you know, they're building essentially a company that's building a new internet, loosely kind of based around blockchain and uh, decentralization, etc. And he's trying to hire and everyone's hiring the best coders and he finds out that it's a pizza app company. And he's just like, pizza app? Are you kidding me? I thought we like moved past this. And so yeah, this, this is like the opposite of spending all your time and resources building a pizza <laughs> app, right? Because like that is not a big, hairy, audacious goal of how to order a pizza better and faster yeah, and that's cheaper. So, that's <laughs> so hilarious. I mean, what a great show. If for any of our listeners that haven't checked out Silicon Valley, uh, it's an HBO show. It's, it's fantastic. It's a laugh. It's so, so hysterical. Chad and I probably have to confess we've had a lot of experiences in Silicon Valley where we probably some of these get a little close to home <laughs> we've met some great right uh -huh. um but it's uh -huh. great it's it's a great laugh and um most importantly you know they have big dreams Larry and Sergey but i think one of the things that adds spice to having these dreams is that they have a very powerful worldview of the role of technology being the path of the future. And again, that's rooted in learning from the past and reflection and informs this going forward point of view. And actually, it's really cool that we get to play our last clip for you now, which is actually from Sergey Brin. And let's have a listen to him now talking about scientific and technology-based progress and what it means for the future. I'd say if you look back, uh, you know, look back 300 years and uh, what we see in the world today, yeah, I mean, there have definitely been substantive political changes and so forth, but the bulk of what would shock a person from then coming to the world now is the technology that has evolved from all the scientific discoveries that we have experienced. And, uh, and so fundamentally, it's the scientific progress that determines the future more than anything else. And if you let that go, then you're basically saying, I don't want to participate in the course of the future. Hmm. This idea of opting out of the future by, by not 
working towards scientific progress, again, is really interesting. Like, how is a pizza app advancing <laughs> science and technology? It's not. But figuring out how to deliver data faster and cheaper to places all around the globe, or in Elon's case, you know, how to get people to Mars uh, better, faster, cheaper, safer. Those are the things that are going to be remembered for 300 so, years. So true. Not, not so many of these other hyped products and services that simply won't, you know, they're, they're not contributing to that. In the same way of, of the open mm. versus closed. You know, I think if your organization is biased towards this idea of scientific pr- and technological progress, you'll just be st- sticking yeah. around. Well, if you longer. look in, in, in a lifetime or so, uh, we have in one generation witnessed the advent of the microprocessor, the PC, the internet, the smartphone, and it ain't finished because we've got a little thing called blockchain, we've got AI. I mean, we have so much coming towards us. And I think what is really special about what we've discovered about these guys is they're all about learning from the past and putting that to good use for the future and doing so in a pretty open way and um, with a bias towards action. I, I have to say, Chad, I think this is one of the most complete lessons we've had in just one single show about how to go for moonshots, how to go for something that's 10 times better. Mm-hmm. I think this is seriously impressive, the, the scope and breadth of what we've learned from, from both Larry and Sergey. Yeah, and it's just kind of clicking for me too, like why these things like AI and blockchain and others are so hot right now it is because these companies are betting on that being the future of science mm. and technology. Like it may not be, you know, one thing that overtakes everything, but certainly at least one of these is going to become, you know, the technology of the early 21st century. And all of these companies want hope to be a part of it because, you know, they're going to make yeah. money off of it. But it's, it's so fascinating that that creates this virtuous cycle of more and more companies working on these new scientific discoveries, which, as Sergey is saying, like, that is what advances yeah. science. Now, a new now. thing that, that comes into play when you become this successful and this large, very similar to what happens to Warren Buffett, is that when you're the size of Google, when they make a push for something, they can almost make a dream come true because they can make yeah, the market. Just like yeah. when Warren Buffett invests now in a company, it's such a green light to the investment community that, that that stock will always go up because once it's public knowledge that he invested, whoop, away we go. Similar to this, Google have such scale that we've discussed that when they say, hey, we're making a bet on AR or VR or artificial intelligence, that makes a market right there. That's like 80% of the smartphones and 80% of search. That's a lot. That's a nice playground, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I really enjoyed, for some reason, I think that we're going to hear a lot of the same things in these shows, Mike, but I am always surprised. And I think what surprised me most was how Larry and Sergey's particular arrangement and leadership style enabled them to move fast and keep the momentum going to execute on these big dreams that they have. So they're like Mm, way up in the clouds, but also super tactical in getting these things done. Yeah. So that, that was really interesting to me to, to learn that about them and and hear that from them. You you would probably argue that Musk has a little bit of that. Uh, He's, he's always pushing to go fast. And you certainly know that Jeff actually is at, at Amazon is snooping around, getting customer emails and actually following up on complaints. (laughs) <laughs> and I love how we're on a first name basis with all of these just the gang. <laughs> billionaire just tech founders. The gang. But what a great way to inspire us to think about the future than hearing from Larry and Sergey. And in respect to them, we're future thinkers too, uh, Chad. We've got a ton of fun things coming up. We've got another guest coming. What are you looking forward to in the next couple of shows? Patagonia mm-hmm. with our guest, Mr. Pat Hanlon. Really looking forward to the guest shows that we have coming up for you, the listeners. 
we're kind of taking a Patagonia. We're, yeah, ridiculous brand. I mean, this is the brand that goes yeah. out and says, don't buy any of our jackets. We'll send a truck to your city and you can just get it mended or fixed so you don't need to waste money and buy a new one. I mean, this is the kind of stuff Patagonia do. Very cool brand. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. So we're, we're taking a dive into some brands mm. uh, for a little while here, learning from some leaders that have created some amazing brands. Uh, in addition to Patagonia, we're, of course, going to take a look at Nike. Yeah. We're c- kind of resurrecting a show topic that we had put on the back burner. Yeah. Um, getting to Martha Stewart. Indeed. Who's built a huge media and product mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, business. She is up there with um, Oprah, right? As a self-made brand. Oh, yeah. Like, ridiculous. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think we'll wrap up this kind of brand focus with one, two, maybe three shows on the biggest brand of them all, at least at the moment, Apple. Yeah, so we're going to do Steve Jobs, his co-founder, Steve Wozniak, and their, I mean, talk about mid-season transfer. They brought in the former CEO of Burberry, Angela Arendt, to come and head up their retail operation. And uh, boy, have we got some goodies for you, the listeners. And and if you want to follow any of these, just jump on to moonshots.io where you can get all the goodies from us. You can get the archives of the show, the show notes, all sorts of links to goodies. Uh, Wow, I'm, I am... I'm pumped after the the Google show. Uh, I've I definitely the reinforcing of this open system was a big one for me, Chad. I, I feel ready to go out there, move fast, break some things, and think about the future. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners that have given us iTunes reviews, Mike. I don't know if you've hopped on on iTunes, but uh, we've got some beautiful five star reviews. You know, if you're listening to the show and want to help others find us, please hop onto iTunes and leave us a review. That's great. Uh, leave an honest review. You don't have to give us five stars, but... Okay, uh, four. We'll take know, four. If you think we're right, worth right, it. Right, we'll take four. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Those, uh, you know, those reviews help us uh, get visibility. And um, yeah, as Mike said, you know, we're always eager to, you know, learn from you what you would like us to investigate, research, and find to bring on to the show. So you can contact us from moonshots.io. Absolutely. And Chad, I want to thank you. Uh, This was so much fun to do, Google. I cannot wait to have Pat on the show. He's a long-term friend of both of ours, going back many, many years and talking about one of the greatest brands on the planet, Patagonia. So uh, from Sydney, thank you, Chad. Are you going to uh, chill out a little bit in Brooklyn? I know the missus is on on a work trip. Are you going to do a Netflix session? I mean, wh- what's the plan? Uh, unfortunately, you know, when the wife's away, the husband just gets more work done. So <laughs> I feel like <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be one of those uh, those. Oh, okay, well, listen, enjoy. I'm going to launch into my day. I've got coffee with a great uh, designer later today. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then I got a million and one calls with Europe later so um i'm i'm ready for a big day now i'm going to be future thinking so thank you to you chad thank you to our listeners this was episode 28 of the moonshots podcast we'll catch you later here on moonshots that's a wrap